Good afternoon, everyone, and very warm welcome to the Oxford Martin School. I'm the director, Ian Golden, and this is the final seminar uh, in our series of seminars this term on the great health challenges of the 21st century. Um, I'm particularly delighted that it's on a topic uh, which I think has been perhaps uh, the defining health success of the past century with over 500 million people's around the world uh, lives being saved by vaccines. And of course the question is uh, what happens in the 21st century or in the remainder of it, uh, is this sustainable uh, and how do we think about vaccines? So I'm absolutely delighted that we're focusing on this topic and that we've got such a wonderful panel uh, this afternoon to help us think about it. The uh, panel will be led uh, and chaired by Professor Susan Lee who's the co-director of the Oxford Martin Program on Vaccines. Uh, the other co-director, Professor Christopher Tang, is here, sitting on my far right. Uh, he's the co-director of the Oxford Martin Program on Vaccines, uh, joined by Professor Jeffrey Armand, uh, closest to me, the former vice president and head of Discovery Division and External Research and Development at Sanofi, uh, Pasteur, and the visiting fellow at the Dunn School uh, of Pathology Oxford, and by uh, Ian Fevers, who's uh, on uh, Susan's right, who's the head of division of bacteriology at the NIBSC. And I'm going to allow um, them and Susan to give further details of why they are absolutely the right people to be helping us think about strategies for vaccines in the 21st century. Susan, over to you. Okay, thank you very much, Ian. Welcome, everyone. So we're going to try and chair this today by having... We've got a set of things that we thought might be worth discussing. We'll begin each topic by having a short discussion amongst people who have, particularly have something to offer. And then we'd like to open it up to questions, really, almost from the start, so that we can talk about what people are interested in. Uh, we thought that we'd just start by giving you a small introduction each so that you can understand what our interests and biases and focuses are. And I have to declare here that I'm the least vaccine competent of the people here and that I'm a very basic scientist. So I'm interested in looking at the molecules involved in infection and our responses to infection. And so whilst the things we do often may have implications for vaccine development and via collaborations with Chris in particular, I've been involved in trying to understand better how to redesign some vaccines. I'm not a practicing vaccinologist in my day-to-day -day life, so I will have the very basic science perspective. And perhaps if we sort of go from the basic science towards an actual product, maybe Chris would like to introduce himself next. Okay, so um, I'm based in the same department as uh, Susan. In fact, Susan was responsible for dragging me from Imperial College up to Oxford about three years ago. And uh, my, my background is that I trained as a clinician scientist uh, worked for a couple of years in Africa, wanted to work on infectious diseases, and got gradually from there led into wanting to do something about infectious disease at, at the intervention level. It struck me that, that developing vaccines for human diseases would be the best possible career choice for me. So it's what I've been doing for the last 15, 20 years. And my main interests are um, meningococcal disease and enteric diseases caused by uh, bacteria such as uh, Shigella flexneri. And my lab is based uh, in the same department as Susan's. Uh, we are supported by um, charities in the government, but also 
work quite a lot with uh, companies to bring vaccines to, to the clinic. Okay, thank you, Chris. Uh, Ian, perhaps? Um, I work, uh, as I was introduced, I'm head of bacteriology at NIBSC. Um, NIBSC stands for the National Institute of Biological Standards and Control, which uh, does what its name says. We make standards for biological assays and we control biological products such as vaccines. Um, my own background, I've been at NIBSC 25 years. I went there as a group leader when I was about 30 years old and uh, now I'm head of department. Um, we're part of the uh, UK regulator, part of the MHRA. And uh, my particular interest myself uh, are in meningitis vaccines. Um, I've also worked on typhoid vaccines in the past and um, pneumococcal vaccines a little bit as well. Thank you, Ian. And then Jeff. Uh, yes, thank you. As Ian said, um, I'm, I, I, well, I used to be an academic, and in fact I was a microbiologist, so I grew up as a, as a scientist a little bit in the same mold as, as Susan, interested in the molecules that, uh, that are involved when pathogens invade um, humans, indeed not only humans, also veterinary uh, diseases as well. Um, after 20 or so years in academia, I moved to Sanofi, um, um, vaccine division. Sanofi Pasteur is the biggest producer of vaccines in the world in terms of volume uh, and um, it offers the full range of human vaccines that I'm sure you're familiar with and your kids get, so diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, uh, haemophilus, uh, hepatitis B, measles, mumps, rubella and all of those things. My role inside that company um, was head of research uh, and, and therefore my responsibility was to try and look into the 21st century and, and assess what was needed, where should we go, what's possible. So marrying, if you like, medical need and world need in control of infectious diseases with the state of knowledge of the small molecules that Susan works on and of course immunology, which is the other key subject that drives uh, vaccinology. Um, I, I occasionally was invited to go beyond infectious diseases and into thinking about whether one could make therapeutic vaccines against cancer, for example, different types of cancer, and also against allergic diseases and autoimmune diseases. Uh, so it doesn't stop with infectious diseases, but indeed infectious diseases are, are where the major successes have been um, over the last century. And uh, Ian mentioned half a million lives, uh, sorry, half a billion lives, mm. and indeed it depends how you calculate it. It's probably significantly more than that. But one of the things that I always like to say about vaccines, their contribution has been not only just saving lives, but somehow liberating uh, humanity from the fear of infectious diseases and making possible um, travel and, and trade and and interactions with, with people outside one's own communities in, in a much more secure and uh, confident way than perhaps we did uh, prior to the days of vaccination. And of course the, the greatest achievements of vaccination have been the er eradication of two extremely important diseases. One was smallpox in humans in the late 1970s and more recently rinderpest um, in, in the animal kingdom. Uh, and those eradications driven by vaccination meant, mean that we no longer have to worry about those diseases anymore. <clears throat> so, great successes, and uh, yeah, I, I better shut up, otherwise. <laughs> <laughs>
So we thought that um, there are many aspects, so there are things that are scientifically challenging about vaccines for the future, there are things about policy, about costing, about models of how industry and government work together. And we thought perhaps we should start with a bit of a discussion about how government and industry interact to actually implement new vaccines. So even assuming you can design a new vaccine, how can you best implement this? And uh, we thought that this was perhaps rather well exemplified by some of the discussions around a new vaccine that's being proposed for inclusion in the UK, about which we now have scientific agreement, but we don't yet have a funding decision. But Ian, perhaps you can introduce the topic for us. Okay. Um, I don't know quite why I'm, I'm the person picked on for this, except that I've got meningitis background, because, or maybe it's because I'm, uh, as part of the regulator, dispassionate. I'm, I'm neither industry nor government. Well, maybe people will say I am government, but I think I should be independent. So what, let, let's take it apart a little bit, first of all, and say, well, what's the role of government? Well, ob the obvious things like keeping the lights on, keeping transport moving, defending the country, and, of course, keeping the population healthy. Um, and, of course, in a market economy, it's also got to make sure that business can thrive. So government's job is to balance all these things very much at a, at a high level, at a, uh, a population level. Um, but, of course, in a democracy, we get to elect our representatives so that the government should be representing our views. The role of industry, on the other hand, is to, to make the things that we need, and that includes the drugs and vaccines that the, that the health department needs, uh, and to do this in a market economy, and, and a, a business has to thrive. It has to make profit, profits, and it has to be attractive to its investors. If they don't thrive, we don't get the things they need. The, the, thing, the issue here is, and I think this is exemplified by the issue with the Bexero vaccine, the new men B vaccine, is that when the government needs drugs and vaccines and, and, the, and the, these are publicly funded and industry is providing them, you then get this tension between the two, the two sides. Uh, ob obviously, the government is trying to balance its priorities and its costs uh, and industry wants to make money. Um, both are interested in public health, without question. Um, the way the government gets its advice to do these things is through committees like NICE and JCVI, NICE for drugs and uh, JCVI for, for vaccines. And, and their job is to review the evidence uh, for the cost effectiveness uh, uh, through modelling, through, through economic modelling, and make judgments about, and, and recommendations uh, to government on, on what would be uh, sensible use of its resources. It's supposed to do this in an objective uh, and dispassionate way. Um, we've reached a point, I think, in, in history where uh, infectious diseases that can be prevented by vaccines, uh, mm -hmm. certainly in the developed world, are getting quite rare. So we're now getting to at the point where, the, a sort of tipping point, where cost-effectiveness is, is, is going to be a critical issue going forward. Um, and, and this is going, is, is, does present governments with a dilemma, ultimately, and this is where we are now with the MenB vaccine, I think. Um, so, the MenB vaccine. Well, there's no question that uh, Group B meningococcal disease is a terrible disease, and it would be best prevented with vaccines. No question about that. Um, however, we're in a situation where the current levels of disease have, have dropped. We're now at about 600 cases of MenB disease a year compared with a decade ago, um, when there were 1,500 cases. Now, a new four-component vaccine was approved by the European Medicines Agency at the beginning of 2013. This is a four-component vaccine, and three of those four components were developed by 
uh, recombinant DNA technology based on one of the first uh, genome sequences that was available. So there's, it's, there's a certain amount of uh, to flag wave about here. This would be the, the first uh, bacterial vaccine based on genome sequence data where the antigens were identified by looking at uh, computer data rather than uh, by immunizing animals and working out what was causing a good immune response. So um, this vaccine was licensed based on correlates of protection because there wasn't enough disease around. You couldn't do efficacy studies. Um, the vaccine is also a bit reactogenic. It causes sore arms. In, in, I don't know if anybody in this room has had the vaccine, but certainly, <laughs> certainly causes sore arms. And, and a, an elevated level of fever in kids uh, when given in, in, at the same time as the DTP vaccine. So there's a sort of a, a small cost as well, a sort of risk, uh, risk uh, to it as well. So risk-benefit analysis as well as cost-benefit analysis. Um, when JCVI reviewed the cost-effectiveness evidence, and there's nothing confidential about this, the, the uh, paper was published by Hannah Christensen in Vaccine. Um, JCVI concluded, based on that evidence, that the vaccine would be cost-effective at a very low price. And where we are today is that Novartis and the Department of Health are negotiating about exactly what price might be paid before this vaccine can be used programmatically. That, that price was about seven pounds a dose? It's around seven? ten, yeah, that's sort of area. Give, given the sort of wobble, it's around ten pound a dose. Right. Yeah. So, so about one-tenth of what Novartis would like to charge for it? The, the current market price is 75 pound a dose, yeah, yeah. so yeah. yes, about, about that sort of order. Um, what we're looking at in terms of statistics is a birth cohort in the UK of about three quarters of a million. That means a program would cost somewhere between uh, 100 and 200 million pounds a year on top of current health spending when it is implemented. So it's not a trivial sum of money for the, for the uh, taxpayer to stump up. Um, that would equate to roughly about 10 million pounds per death averted. Um, and, and part of the problem with this sort of cost effectiveness analysis is, is that with a disease like meningococcal disease, a lot of it occurs in a very young age group. So you're looking uh, at a lot of the cases occurring before you've even finished vaccinating. So you, the vaccine would be more cost effective if you could somehow get those kids immunized earlier. Uh, and it's interesting this year that we've had um, maternal immunization campaign for, for pertussis in this country, and maybe that would be the way forward uh, for a MenB vaccine possibly in the future. The other thing that, the, that wasn't available to JCVI, there's no evidence at the moment, one way or the other, about the herd effect of this vaccine. That's the ability of the vaccine to disrupt the spread of disease through a population. Obviously, if a vaccine can do this, um, it's going to be much more cost effective because you're preventing disease in people who aren't immunized as well as those who are. Um, there are other issues with other vaccines, not just MenB, um, uh, and it can be, the, the, the situation can be the other way around, where even if the vaccine is relatively inexpensive, uh, countries that are, are not very rich themselves will struggle. Um, and there you, you, you often see interventions in the market. So you've got things like Gavi and PATH and the WHO intervening to make vaccines available for countries where they wouldn't otherwise be affordable. So the question that's uh, open to, to discussion here is what should one do in this era when we're getting to a point where vaccines are marginally cost effective? And this is the first one that's really on the cusp, I think, that, that's uh, really... So, Jeff? I, I saw someone shake their head 
uh, in disbelief when I mentioned that it's about the cost effectiveness point is about one tenth of what Novartis would like to charge for the vaccine. And there is a tendency, and I think particularly in audiences like this, academia, let's say non-industrialists, I'm, I'm assuming something here, but let's assume it for a moment, um, to think that, that pharmaceutical companies in general and, and companies that make vaccines um, you know, are sort of um, greedy, profit-motivated um, enterprises that don't really care about public health. And, um, and I may have even thought that myself before I, I worked in them. But actually, when you work inside them, you realize that they're not quite as bad as that. Um, of course, they have to make a profit. They are companies. If they start making losses, the company can collapse. If the company collapse, of course, then the, the supply collapses, not only of new vaccines, but of existing vaccines. So. So as a society, we can't allow these companies not to make a profit, or we can't allow the companies to collapse, should we put it like that. Mm. So we have to be reasonable in, in, in allowing them to charge a price, which means they can make a profit, they can reinvest some of that profit into future R&D, uh, and that they can sustain themselves, and indeed be, let's say, an attractive business for other inward investment. They have to be as profitable as other industries are um, that are, you know, on the stock market in the city. Uh, otherwise, they will fail. Um, so, just on the point of seventy-five pounds versus seven pounds, um, I don't know whether seventy-five pounds is reasonable. I suspect it's not unreasonable, bearing in mind that the cost of developing a new vaccine today is of the order of a billion dollars. Um, and uh, that also needs explanation. There's a lot of work done before a company even starts in academia. Um, the Susan-type work of understanding the molecules involved that industry doesn't pay for at all. Industry picks it up when there are candidates, that is, proteins or, or antigens or other structures that might be relevant to try and put into a vaccine, and it tries to do that. But in doing so, it has to do the work of preparation of those um, materials, those antigens that go into the vaccine. It has to work out controls, it has to uh, scale up, it has to do safety testing and clinical trials and so on. And, it's the, and then eventually industrialize, which means build a factory that can produce the stuff in tens or hundreds of millions of doses that are required um, um, around the world. So the cost of production at the end may also be significant, but certainly the cost of research and development to get it from the Susan-level ideas through to something in a syringe that you can stick into a baby's arm is the part that costs a billion. Once you're making it, the cost may be, per vaccine, quite modest, maybe a dollar or two, or maybe even less, depending on the particular vaccine. So if it costs a dollar to make and you want 70 for it, it sounds like a big profit, but remember that billion of sunk costs in developing and getting it there. Um, one of the problems with men B is not many, it is a low incidence disease these days. The incidence in the United States uh, had fallen really even well below that in the UK, although there's been a little bump recently um, with some outbreaks. And the question comes, you know, can the health service um, and will insurers in the USA pay that level that, that is required uh, to protect lives. 10 million pounds per life 
doesn't sound much if it's a healthy baby, but actually if you ask the other question, how many more lives could you save with 10 million spent elsewhere in the health system, it isn't an easy decision always to say yes. Um, at the cost effectiveness. I think we have difficulties making decisions comparing different individuals. So as he said, you know, um, these vaccines are directed at very vulnerable young children. How do, we, how do we compare the value of a child's life over 60 years with a cancer therapy which might prolong life in somebody who is quite elderly for six months to a year? And those, those, are, those are difficult decisions. And, and indeed, just, and you're touching on another point where vaccines differ from drugs. Yeah. The thing about drugs is people are sick. You can measure impact very, very readily. Um, people will pay when they're sick. Um, I, I usually equate it to like, you know, you, you, um, you, you bend your car and knock the front wheel out of alignment. You take it to the garage and you pay because you need it yeah. to be put right. But when it comes to insurance against that, you're much less likely to pay. You hate paying insurance because there's nothing wrong with your car at that point. And vaccines are insurance. Mm. And, and you can never charge as much for, for a prevention against the possibility of getting a disease as you can for treating the disease. And people are not as prepared to pay. It, it uh, so it is, it is, you, you have that factor as well as then the cost of mm. effectiveness mm. argument that comes into this and, and what is a reasonable amount of money to spend. That said, of course, protecting kids um, is a very noble um, thing to do, and, and, and we do aim most vaccines at kids, although there are some, of course, for, for adults and, and the elderly. Um, and um, yeah, and, and certainly if you're saving lives where there is a prevalent disease, it's a no-brainer. But when it becomes a very rare disease, it becomes more difficult to justify. Some governments do it and others don't, which means the sale volumes for the company are not as high. So their costs have to be higher. The cost per dose has to be higher because they're not selling as much. And you get into that rather difficult um, equation of, of mm. what is reasonable to spend and how much, uh, how much is it worth. So, Chris, you had quite a lot of involvement with the charities that are interested in this area as well. So, the, the charities, uh, there are several, there are two main charities supporting meningitis research and uh, supporting individuals who've suffered from meningitis and their families. Ian and I are both involved in Meningitis Research Foundation. Uh, there's Meningitis Now as well, which is another, another large charity. And they, they, they're essentially there to support their members and, and, and deliver the. Um, wishes of the members, and clearly their members are made up of individuals whose lives have been touched, often very profoundly by diseases, and they form a very important lobby and um, a sounding point for uh, of advocacy for, for vaccines and the introduction of vaccines, and it's been the case for meningococcal B vaccine. Um, what happened with the first JCVI decision, which was about nine months before the most recent one, was that the, the meningitis B vaccine was deemed as non-cost effective, even if it was given free by Novartis. And I mean, this is a question to return to, but looking at the same vaccine and the same population, the second time JCVI met, they decided it could be cost effective. So I'm not certain that we capture, I'm not certain we capture everything with our current cost effective study, cost effectiveness studies. And these have got to be really done properly and done well. And, and reflect the wishes of the population um, 
because they're the things which are they're the they're the sort of mechanism by which all these important decisions are being made. And so I think a lot of work and thought has to be has to go into how these these studies are performed. At, at another point I want to raise and, and bring to Jeff is that clearly when 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 the the the, the program to start vaccine development. Um, back in 2000 against men B was taken or, or before then. Uh, as Ian rightly pointed out, disease incidents in the UK were threefold higher or, uh, than they are currently. Mm. And um, clearly if you do a, a business plan or a cost effectiveness study at that stage, the numbers look very different then from now. So the question to Jeff is, um, once, you, once you press the start button on these things and you, and you go from development into clinical trials, how often, how, how carefully do the companies keep an eye on the numbers and well, review these? And, and what are the companies' view on the cost-effectiveness no. calculations? Because well, I know yeah. Novartis have been involved in this. Uh, well, discussion. in a big company like uh, Sanofi, which actually has about 120,000 employees, but the vaccines division, a bit small, about 15,000, mm -hmm. um, certainly the range of skills in that company include market analysts and mm. specialists in, in exactly these types of questions who then interface closely with people in R&D. And whenever we wanted to start a new project, aiming a new vaccine, new, new disease indication, um, the first thing we did as scientists was, was about technical feasibility, biological feasibility. Do the molecules work? Um, can you, do you know what immune status looks like? Is there an animal model in which you can test it before going into humans? And then when you do go into humans, um, how are you going to then show that you protect against the disease? Is, is it high enough incidence? Can you do it reasonably? And then other questions like, um, is the approach going to be acceptable to the regulators? Um, is it going to be safe? Uh, for example, and then can you industrialize it? You put all of those things into the mix, and then you go to the marketing guys and say, you know, and what, what would be the sales volumes around the world? What would be the call for this vaccine in different countries? And what could we possibly charge? Interestingly, the charging, our usual model was to say, well, what does this disease cost? We just take an example of the UK. And, uh, and you think of something like respiratory syncytial disease in, in babies, which is a big, big cause of hospitalization in children uh, under the age of six months. And you actually calculate the cost of hospitalizing those kids to the health system. And, um, uh, and the incidence of that disease, of course, drives that. And let's say you worked out that it, it cost the health system 100 million a year, say. Then what you could do is say, all right, if we sell an RS, a vaccine to prevent this to the UK government, then we can charge them 100 million for that vaccine cost then divided by the number of kids you would need to vaccine to get the price per unit. And, and in doing that, you're not costing them anything. You're preventing a, a spend elsewhere mm. and you're benefiting the nation in that it will have healthier babies. And since that particular disease predisposes to asthma, those might be quite significant savings for the country to have at a break-even price for the vaccine. Now, if, if as a company you thought, well, actually, the country is doing really well out of this, and um, you know they're likely to pay a bit more. You might push it up to 150 or 200 million that you'd charge with that additional benefit. But your starting point was that sort of break-even point for for a, a healthcare system like the UK's in in deciding price. Now, 
your question about what about how it evolves during your 10 or 12 mm. years of trying to make this new vaccine, of course you have to be uh, absolutely aware of that. And the MenB question, we, mm. we in Sanofi had a MenB vaccine, mm. the one you're talking about has come from Novartis, of course. Um, and in that process, we stopped because we saw the incidence falling greatly, also partly because we saw Novartis were ahead of us and would get to the market first and they would then get a bigger market share and we would be second and having to chip away at their market, which is always hard work. But, but we stopped. And um, now whether that was a good decision, I hated it because we got to a point where we got something that worked really well um, and we were confident that it would, that it would fly. Uh, but our marketers suddenly said, no, the value of this is, is too low. We can't justify spending the, you know, the, the extra spend that we hadn't by that point made uh, because of exactly the issues that we're now touching on would the government recommend it? Would we get a reasonable price for it? And would we get our money back? And, uh, and our decision in Sanofi, because we were second, was to stop. Novartis kept going, but they're now faced with this situation where they haven't yet re recuperated the money that they, that they spent on, on, um, on making the vaccine. And the sales volumes around the world at the moment are not enough to give them a good profit. If, if this evolves and this becomes well, well-used vaccine around the world, they will make a profit, they'll do well. But we're not, yeah. we're not quite there. So that's interesting, Jeff, you're saying you cost the vaccine, not on what it costs to develop it in any ways, but on the perceived value to the place Correct. you're trying to sell it. Correct. So it's, it's a what can we sell it for rather than what does it cost us? That's marketing these days. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, the other it, thing you mentioned about the MB vaccine as well, a few years ago, you might not remember, <laughs> when you were still at Sanofi, was that, um, Clearly there are vaccines out there for pneumococcal disease and there are um, vaccines out there for other strains of Neisseria meningitis, which have got different capsules. And those are the conjugate vaccines, which have been hugely successful. These are vaccines where uh, uh, a polysaccharide from a capsule is attached to a protein carrier and that elicits very strong immunity. And these have been- and herd immunity as well. Herd immunity, it's been massively successful technology um, Save, save countless of lives, uh, countless number of lives. But you said that if somebody could get the MEMB vaccine, it would mean that they control that highly um, lucrative uh, conjugate market, which at the time Wyeth was, 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 were dominating, and I think it was worth about well, three yeah, billion yeah, dollars yeah, at that stage. Yeah, yeah just to, okay, so that's the strategic value of a MEMB vaccine mm. you're referring to now. Uh, a simpler version of what you're saying. Meningitis is caused by one of four serotypes, A, B, C, and Y. Y, W as well. W is emergency. Yeah, W, so I've got five. Anyway, but, well, A, C, Y, W is the one that we marketed, and we're missing B, and A, C, Y, W um, was actually a valuable vaccine that makes for Sanofi around about half a billion dollars a year. And so the best thing to do with the B is to put it in there yeah. and then you have a pentavalent, ABCYW. And, um, and, and, then, uh, uh, and then you can get the whole market. So, so for a company like Novartis to have it and to then claim that other market 
you can have it in almost as a lost leader mm -hmm. without making a profit on it itself because mm -hmm. you're making a profit on those other components. Mm -hmm. So strategically, yeah, you can play games like that, which alters then um, the structure mm -hmm. of the market and alters mm -hmm. your motives and, and pricing. And of course, um, Novartis does have that four-valent vaccine yeah, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So Ian, I was wondering, we were talking about the cost-effectiveness and comparing different treatments. How much do you think it affects the way we make decisions in the UK that we have one group who meet and discuss vaccines and their cost-effectiveness and another group who meet and discuss other sorts of drugs? Well, Can we really do them in, in parallel to one another? I think, it's, I think it's probably very hard, I think, for the reasons yeah. Jeff has said about the modelling. Um, it's interesting that um, JCBI has, itself has recognised this because it's now got a group set up to look at... Um, at whether the NICE model, which it's been using, the, the same model as for all other medical interventions, um, it, it's looking at, at, at whether that model is actually appropriate for vaccines. Uh, and it may well come to conclusion it isn't. I, I don't know. I'm not a member of JCBI, I should add. It, it, I just happen to be an observer at their meetings. Okay, so we thought perhaps we'd turn to, to see if folks have got any questions now. Um, I've just been asked to tell you that actually the proceedings today are being filmed, so if you ask a question, uh, you should be aware of the fact that you're going to be filmed asking that question. So, questions. Don't let that discourage you. <laughs> Don't let that discourage you. Come down here. If, you, if you'll wait for the microphone, that'd be great. Okay. Cost-effectiveness has dominated the discussion so far, and it is important, but I'd like the discussion also to wander into the non-cost-effective area. Mm -hmm. I listened to Adrian Hill last week, well, and he talked about, gave a survey of the history of trying to get a vaccine for malaria and then one for Ebola and then he put up on the screen I think it was 15 diseases mm -hmm. for which he claimed there would never be vaccines but there could be vaccines well if you could get charities or governments to to fund it. Indeed. Well I, I, I alluded to that at the end of, uh, of my sort of introduction to this topic but there are some countries where there are diseases that are, and, and those countries can't really afford uh, the vaccines themselves. Uh, uh, again, in the meningitis area, the, the issue of sub-Saharan Africa was a big problem a few years ago, and I used to go to interminable WHO meetings about why isn't there a vaccine against MENA in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and finally, um, with the help of the WHO and PATH, uh, a, a group was set up to get a vaccine as cheaply as possible. Uh, and, it, and it was done by having that vaccine made in, by a developing country manufacturer. The vaccine's actually made in India. And it's, and it's a monovalent vaccine specifically for that. You're talking about MENA? Yes, yeah. the Manafri vaccine. But, but you know, pr again, from an industrial perspective, that was a vaccine that we knew worked and we knew how to mm. make. Absolutely. When you come to something like Ebola or malaria or HIV, um, and uh, Ebola being perhaps the best example yeah. of where you can't make uh, a business case because, you know, it's just you're never going to get the billion dollars back from selling it to those African countries when they have outbreaks once every 10 years and it's very localized. Um, and the idea that you could ask government to fund the development of that is very nice and works to a point. But if if you're talking about a disease for which we don't know how to do it, we're trying things rather than, in your example, actually making in a, a developing country something that you already know how to make and that it works, um, then you're asking almost for a blank check from those charities and government because it may fail. You may spend 
you know, 500 million pounds and, and you still don't have the vaccine. And the researcher says, well, we need another 500 million and another 500 million. And the companies can't afford to do that because of their ongoing uh, market performance and their revenues each year. And they ditch things and they try something else and they keep moving forward. And in the background, there's basic research going on which informs and helps. Um, but the notion that, that a government can, and a charity can, from start to finish, do that, um, it, it's really difficult. I've, I've been in meetings um, recently where, you know, with, with, with government uh, um, health officials and, and, um, and, and, of course, industrialists, where we've acknowledged that today um, governments can't do what the pharmaceutical companies do. Start with a disease and a knowledge of the biochemistry and physiology of that and come out the other end with an intervention that they can place on the market um, to treat that, that disease or prevent that disease in the case of the vaccine. Um, governments don't have the wherewithal, the organization, the investment capability, the the skill sets, the, uh, they, they can't do it. These big multinationals that do that sort of thing are multi-billion, hundred billion dollar sized companies that have um, cumulative expertise sometimes over a hundred years mm. um, and, uh, you know, and they have skill sets in all the domains required from engineering to build the plants through to molecular biology at the early end through marketing analysis and all the things we've been talking about. Um, so, so the industry has to be involved there. What you can do is sweeten it and you can say we'll, we'll help you at the front end and we'll guarantee sales at the mm. back end. So we have something called a push-pull type mm. mechanism. We push you to make a vaccine with a bit of money to help get it going and we pull by saying if you achieve it we'll, we're guaranteed to buy you know, 10 million doses per year for the first 10 years of its life at a given price, so you know you're going to get some sales. Um, Adrian, I didn't see his list, uh, Adrian Hill, I'm sure he's right. There are, there are a number of diseases out there where it's a very difficult um, case to make uh, to spend the billion dollars to make the vaccine. And, you know, if we had a vaccine against Ebola, we'd be using it, mm. you know, with urgency in, in, in Western Africa at the moment and, and, and perhaps even beyond. We don't, and it's difficult, and maybe Chris... Well, it, it does relate to pick up a very important question about what should we do to prepare ourselves for outbreaks such as Ebola. I think Ebola has really questioned policy in terms of vaccine design and, and vaccine mm. development for, for, for many people. Um, but just to put it in context, I mean, um, if you look back over the span of the 40 years from when Ebola was first identified back in 1976 by Peter Peart, um, there have been roughly about 25 deaths a year from uh, Ebola uh, over that year time globally. And so, as Jeff says, it's going to be mm. very difficult for any company to be convinced to, to, to institute a, a vaccine development program. The question is, as a, as a community, research community, scientific, academic, and, and, and uh, uh, pharmaceutical industry, what position would we be best in so that we can address this uh, sort of major global catastrophe, which it, which this really is. And I think we, we're in a relatively fortunate position with Ebola in that there, there are a couple of experimental vaccines out there available, which have been faster, three, sorry. Mm. Well, you have two, two, three, 
two and a half maybe, <laughs> two which are very closely related and all three are very closely, all three are quite closely related. Do you want to come back on me? You look as if you disagree with me entirely. So. But we must also remember there's involvement so of a company there as well. It's a GSK, GSK. NIH vaccine. So. And, 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 <laughs> and there, would be, there would be no vaccine whatsoever if this wasn't put on the bioterror list after 9-11. Mm. There, there are ways of doing it. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, and Chris and I were talking earlier yeah. today. You, you can get governments and government-funded research to identify the principles, the best chance we have of doing it. So taking the envelope protein from Ebola and yeah. putting it into a carrier and you know, the sort of things that, that Adrian does and, uh, and, and the, other, the other candidates are based on these same principles. And you can get it to the point at, at relatively small cost of first in human trials. Um, and you know, you're not gonna show uh, protection, but you're gonna show an immune response and that it's safe. And from then on, you'd have an experimental vaccine. And there are ways to work with the regulators that would say, okay, well, let's make a few hundred thousand doses and, and use them at risk. A company won't do that without very close um, uh, support from the government because it would want to be absolved of any um, uh, liability should it turn out to be in larger numbers uh, harmful because it would say, you know, the industry would never do that. It would go through the proper regulatory process, phase one, phase two, phase three, scale up and so on, uh, and, and would have many, many more controls because its reputation is at stake, uh, its investment is at stake, and that's the, the piece that takes the billion dollars and the 10 to 15 years. But in emergencies like this, you can envisage, you know, going much, much faster, but with government taking responsibility uh, and absolving the, the companies of responsibility for any adverse events and any, uh, any bad outcomes. You do get bad outcomes, by mm -hmm. the way. Occasionally, you know, we've mentioned mm -hmm. swollen arms, that's relatively trivial, but you can trigger autoimmune disease, um, and certainly sometimes you can exacerbate. There was an example of respiratory syncytial uh, uh, vaccine um, in the 19, late 1960s, where in the clinical trials, um, the babies who got the vaccine versus those that got the placebo when they were followed the following winter and were exposed then to the virus, they got, they got worse disease than the placebo. So it was an example of where the vaccine induced an immune response and that immune response contributed to what we call immunopathology. In other words, the immunity drove the disease uh, to be even more severe than the virus itself was doing. Uh, and just and to emphasize point there, you'd only see that uh, if when you take the vaccine into the field. So the sort of small scale studies which are being done in, in individuals who do not have a risk of infection, where you're see. looking at safety for the vaccine per mm -hmm. se and immune responses, you're not gonna see that sort of um, enhanced um, immune pathology after infection. So that's a mm -hmm. real, yeah, this is why we have to consider these vaccines as, as, as experimental currently. Yeah. Incredibly important potential tools for the control of this devastating disease, incredibly important tools for give healthcare workers confidence to uh, fight this uh, in hospitals yeah. and potentially very valuable for the future, but still currently experimental. And really in these outbreak situations, I think, I think they provide not only 
lessons for the community, mm. but also also very important opportunities that these things should be tested in a rigorous fashion and not just used in a blanket mm. way. Because if we don't learn from yeah. this situation, yeah. then next time it comes, then we, we're of still ignorant. Of course, the other intervention here is using passive immunization, mm. which is a different topic, which we could talk about. But that's where you take the antibodies and infuse those rather than trying to provoke those antibodies mm. with, with the vaccine. And the antibodies are available potentially from survivors who've mounted an immune response, therefore they have the antibodies in their blood, or you can engineer them um, mm. in cell culture. Yes. And that, that's of course the other, the other way of yeah. doing this. But that's expensive, um, small numbers. Vaccine would be better if we can achieve it and mm. experimentally you know, we've got some candidates. It's a question of how quickly can we move, and can we can we be ready with something in time, um, or will quarantine actually do the job? Mm. I think as it's, was, as it's yeah. done in the past, actually, yes. quarantine has worked very well. I mean, I think what was interesting about Adrian's list is Ebola was there, and Ebola's an interesting one because they're very good strategies that are obvious to design vaccines against Ebola. Then he had things on his list such as malaria and HIV where the problem is actually that we don't have a good classical strategy. So it's how do you develop novel science to underpin novel vaccines rather than adapt an existing vaccine strategy to generate a, you know, a vaccination against a, different, a slightly different variant of something. Mm. Do we have other questions? Has anyone looked at the potential cost effectiveness of developing vaccines like the MEMB vaccine if there's a significant rise in the incidence of the disease in the future? Or is it just very unlikely that there will be? The cost effectiveness data, in fact, uh, was on the vaccine side in this respect because um, um, Chris mentioned earlier that JCBI made an, uh, a preliminary decision which it put out to public consultation the public, including the meningitis charities, came back with some criticisms, and one of one of those was the burden of disease, a question around the burden of disease. Um, and in fact, what the modelling does is look at a, a window of about seven years, because MenB disease, like all meningococcal diseases, is dependent on different strains appearing and causing little epidemics in, in effect in the population, um, which cause uh, a sort of cyclical incidence of disease, and so. It, just in case we're at a low point at the moment and the disease goes up again, the, the cost effectiveness was based on a window, I think, of seven or eight years. I can't remember exactly, but I think it was about seven or eight years. Mm. I, I think there is good evidence we are at a low point at the moment yeah. for, for meningococcal B yeah. disease, lowest point since, this, since before the Second World War. Your, po your point is if we could read the future, we could redo <laughs> the maths, yes. but yeah. we, we can't. And, uh, I think in the case of the numbers, it's quite simple maths because it, it is simply multiplying by, there's nothing complicated about this. It's, it's, there is a direct relationship between the number of cases and the cost effectiveness in, in, in the models. Of so if you've got three yeah. times more disease, the, vaccine, the, the cost effectiveness is a third, or the, you know, it's a third cheaper. Mm. So. Another thing that was taken into account, in fact, in this case, which is quite interesting, I think, was the cost of litigation because... Um, doctors often miss meningococcal disease and then they get embroiled in law cases. And that was, I think, the first time the cost of litigation was ever factored in at all. Um. Okay, another question down here at the front. Hi. Um, so just going back to this whole cost effectiveness, 
effective nesthene and the whole modeling that's used for that. I was just wondering, it just sounds to me like it's all maths and it's all computers and you put in things and you generate this thing that tells you whether or not the vaccine's cost effective. Um, in this day and age, I, I was just wondering whether there is some involvement of the public and parents, because thinking about meningitis, men B disease, for example, I know obviously the incidence is dropping and has stayed down, but then there is a huge degree of complications from men B disease. And it's not just the direct effect in terms of hospital admissions. Um, these children are going to have long-term complications, you know, hearing problems, um, you know, educational difficulties, they end up having DLAs, you know, parents lose um, their jobs, you know, time off work, etc. So in terms of thinking about whether or not the vaccine is cost effective, I don't know how much the public is involved and whether people seek what they think, you know, what, what, just speak to parents, what do they think that yeah. would be beneficial for them? You know, people that have been, ex you know, have had this experience with men B before, what do they think, you know, if they had to have a vaccine, what do they think that this vaccine should help do, if that makes sense, and then use that to actually decide whether or not a vaccine is cost effective. So this is a really important point, um, and it's a very forceful point that was used by the meningitis charities to, to convince or to input into the, the cost effectiveness data the second time around. They went away, did evaluations on people's lives uh, by, by seeking their members, and got an estimate then of, of how much it would cost, as you say, looking after uh, an individual lifelong with, with severe disability. And um, that fed into the, the second round of calculations, I think at least partially, if not, not completely. Well, I think it was weighted more than it had been in the first yeah. time round. Yes. Yeah, the, the World Health Organization, when thinking about these things, has a, a little measure called qualis, uh, which is quality-adjusted life years. And you know, it, it's, it's a fairly simple concept in, in as much as if you, you know, if you prevent with a vaccine or, or you treat with a drug, somebody with influenza, you prevent five to 10 days of illness. But, um, but if you prevent meningitis, given that the consequences of the infection may be lifelong, you prevent a whole lifetime of illness effectively. Um, and, and the same with you know, things like di any chronic conditions, diabetes, for example, if you can, if you can prevent it, you save treating that, entire, that patient for their entire life. Um, so, so those things are uh, taken into account in, in you know, these sorts of calculations uh, about cost effectiveness. It's not only about number of individuals and number of deaths, it's also about outcome if you don't vaccinate and then you know, the, the burden of, of, of that damaged child uh, to the health system for the rest of its life. So those things are incorporated into the models. Can I also bring up another issue, Jeff? I mean, I, 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 um, Ian, um, one, one of the, the um, issues with the MEMB vaccine is that it, it has been licensed and it will be introduced, and estimates and coverage are based on um, correlates of protection, serological markers, immune responses against particular strains or particular antigens, and it gives us then estimates of, of um, efficacy. And clearly for a disease like um, Neisseria meningitis or many other childhood infections which we might want to pre prevent in the future, group B streptococcus, group A streptococcus, mm -hmm. the incidence is, is in the hundreds across the country. 
and doing then a, a, a study to look at um, the effect of a vaccine at a large clinical trial level is essentially non-feasible. You have to use these correlates of protection. And clearly when you've got a correlate of protection um, against things which we know are inherently uh, variable and different, then uh, we, 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 we start to guess we estimate, guess isn't the right word, I apologize. We have to estimate, um, however accurate you might think, but that you get estimates of, of coverage. And, and how much is that, is that an issue in terms of, of, of going forward? Thinking about vaccine trial design and um, having to rely on <coughs> correlates of protection to give you estimates. Yeah, I, I mean, just for those of you who are not perhaps uh, familiar with the immunology, the correlates of protection point is that if you you inject somebody um, and wait till till they're exposed to the disease and then they don't get disease whereas the placebos have got the water do that's that that's your measure of efficacy but if you can't wait for the exposure or the incidence is so low you can ask do they have antibodies and the answer is yes they have antibodies okay you conclude those antibodies will protect that's a correlative protection it's not that straightforward. The example I gave earlier of exacerbation of disease with respiratory syncytial virus in the 1960s says if you have the wrong sort of antibodies, you may not get protection, you may even make it worse. So having antibodies alone is not a correlate. So you need the correlate in much more detailed terms and it's very difficult to get those correlates. We, we've got it from NB, which meant that you could license it without looking for the efficacy. But for some others, like Staphylococcus aureus, for example, um, which is one of those organisms that fr uh, frequently comes up as, as uh, multi-antibiotic resistant, you would like to have a vaccine. But again, the incidence of severe disease in the, uh, uh, with that organism is so um, low, and for the companies then, you're faced with really enormous clinical trials at the end to show efficacy. And the authorities won't give you a license to sell it unless you've showed efficacy or you've got really good correlates and we don't have correlates for that disease so we're faced with in the industry doing enormously large trials and the the most recent example of that for Staphylococcus aureus was a company called Merck who did a, a field trial that cost in the region and and, and I'm, uh, I, I'm not um, I don't have precision on the cost but it was in the region of three to four hundred million um, for the final trial after spending a lot to get it to that point um, where they said right we're going for it and they went into intensive care units and looked for staphylococcal uh, involvement actually in cardiac disease mm -hmm. and it failed mm -hmm. and um, and you know it scares the hell out of, of the R&D people in the industry because they think wow we spent all that money and it failed what do we do next time round to be sure that we're going to have a better chance of success and, um, and it's not easy. And so some of these diseases may be held up um, by there not being a business case, but sometimes they're held up by, although there's a great business case if you had it, the cost of getting it and the risks of getting there are so high that you might lose a lot of money on the way, and that can be very inhibitory as well. Mm. Um, so on, on, on the correlates of protection and for things like Staphylococcus, you come back to basic science mm. and you say, okay, Susan, help. <laughs> can, we, can we really more precisely define the, the structures, the antigens mm. involved? Can we more uh, 
can we better understand the natural immune response when you get a natural infection mm. with these? Um, does is there an, a natural immunity? Some mm. organisms, if you get once in your life, you protect it. Others, you get repeatedly. So even your natural immune response that you make to them and you recover doesn't protect you next time round. Um, an organism that we discussed. Um, and, and, staphyl and Staphylococcus, unfortunately, is one yeah. of those that you yeah. seem to yes. be able to get many times in your lifetime. So you don't know what an immune status looks like in, mm. a, in a human. Mm. So you don't know what you're trying to achieve with your vaccine. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and therefore you're reliant on those hugely expensive efficacy trials. So another question. I, I think perhaps this link between how antimicrobial resistance and vaccines play together is an interesting one to discuss. Mm. Um, on this question of uh, whether governments uh, can or can't compete with the pharmaceutical mm. companies uh, in relation to the uh, development of vaccines, um, how much money does the UK government spend per annum and how much money does the uh, US government spend per annum and how does that compare to the £1 billion that it costs to develop each individual vaccine? Is that money totally or money for medical research? Well, totally, basically. Uh, you know, how much money does the UK government spend per annum on everything? I, I mean, I, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know the figure. Not as much as Where's the economist when you need one? <laughs> um, I don't know the figure off the top of my head, but I believe the expenditure on health yeah. is approximately one-third of the UK government expenditure. And I would have thought that would have been quite a, few, quite a lot of billions of pounds. And but it's all being spent on things we need anyway. I think that's the problem. It's additional monies. Yeah, and also, I mean, as, as a, not, as a basic scientist who in the last few years has done some percentage of my work with companies, though it's still a small percentage, I think also there's, there is a basic issue that actually uh, academic scientists are not trained to manufacture vaccines. It's, they are a different set of skills. And so I don't think this should be about trying to cut one or the other out of the process, but actually the whole point is by working together we can most yeah. cost-efficiently get there. So I don't think it's a simple matter of give me a billion pounds, I'll make you a vaccine. I don't necessarily have no, the right skills. It's, you're right. And that billion, of course, is, in, is, is, is putting it in at one end and getting something out of the other to an established structure and organisation that you've already built. Um, to build that structure and employ those people and get the skill sets together um, cost you way more than a billion. A billion is the sort of flow through per vaccine. So for, let's say, the NHS to decide that it wanted to take a lump out of its funding and recreate a vaccine business from start, you know, start to finish or research all the way through to production would be way more than a billion. Uh, uh, hesitate to estimate how much, but probably of the order of 20 billion. Yes. I mean and and then, a, then a billion a year flowing through to, to give it a reasonable chance mm -hmm. of, of producing something. So there are, Better mean, there left are, to the private sector. Th th there are some things about trying to make sure that academic ideas get a bit closer to things that industry can recognise as being useful to them to try and mm -hmm. help that process. And here in Oxford, for instance, Adrian Hill and others have set up a small-scale manufacturing capacity so that trials can go just a little bit further before you, they have to be proved successful enough to get drug company involvement because there's an ability to take the project beyond that which academia would have traditionally done. And I think things like that are very interesting, sort of 
blurring the margins at which the handover process happens. Yeah. And, and the MRC has specifically invested in this area through their mm. um, um, development pathway, um, pathway funding, funding <laughs> and the Wellcome Trust as well has got a specific scheme to try and get academics further down the track to produce a molecule which becomes more attractive for the companies. I mean, from, from the academic point of view, looking at looking, surveying the scene, I feel slightly pessimistic, mm. I'm afraid. Um, just from the point of view that um, there seems to have been what, what some people call consolidation in the industry, but or shrinkage of, of the number of serious vaccine companies out there. And I, I, I worry that the pharmaceutical industry doesn't really see the, the business model for vaccines. Mm. I mean, it, it's a bit like asking Starbucks mm. to make a, make a coffee, which um, you take when you're 13 and you never need a coffee again. I mean, it's, it doesn't make any sense. You know, you want Starbucks well, want to make lovely coffee you want to drink on a daily yeah. basis. Yeah. Companies well, want to make drugs you want to take on a daily basis. Yes. They don't want to take, give you a, a, a drug which stops you being ill. And, and, and there's been a shrinkage in, in, in vaccine, yeah. the number of vaccine companies out there. And the UK, the UK used, to be a, used to be a, a hotbed yeah. of, of uh, companies with Burroughs Welcome and... Uh, yeah. Yeah. But now, now there's well, there's G no GSK, if we can call GSK British, but actually, well, it's, it's, it's based it's, in Belgium. It's, Bel yeah. it's Belgium yeah. for its manufacturing <laughs> and uh, and vaccine yeah. business. So, so, I mean, I, well, I, I, do, I do sort of, it does concern me. Yeah, I wouldn't like to um, let this whole meeting be, uh, you know, dominated by discussions of markets yeah. and cost yeah. effectiveness. Yeah. No, we, we maybe would talk about how do you make an HIV vaccine or something like that, which is also a topic. But but interrupt me, but just finally then, before we go away from this cost effectiveness, you're, you're absolutely right. The number of companies that are big in vaccines has declined over the last decades. Really, it's GSK and Sanofi now that are the ones that produce the wide range of vaccines with companies like Pfizer and Merck and uh, more recently Johnson & Johnson who have some activity. But in terms of that range of childhood infections that I that I listed at the beginning, it's really just uh, Sanofi and GSK, and then a little bit patchy in places like India where they do a few of those things from, from smaller uh, uh, com uh, companies. You're right to say, you know, it's a bad business model for a, for a drug that you take once in your lifetime or a vaccine that you get once in your lifetime. It's an even worse business model when you consider that if you do it really well, you eradicate the disease and you can't sell your vaccine at all, <laughs> which is what happened with smallpox, because you know, none of us make any money out of smallpox vaccine anymore because no one takes it, because there's no need. Polio is about to be eradicated. Um, that's a bit more complicated. Measles is potentially eradicable. There'll be no sales of uh, Rinderpest vaccine for the, for the veterinary people in the next years. A tremendous, uh, but we're, you know, we in the industry were delighted mm -hmm. by that, even yeah. though it hurt our pockets, because that's, you know, the contribution to humanity and, and the value that, um, <clears throat> that we've created. And where we go, of course, is looking forward to other things. And I mentioned cancer analogies and other things. Uh, uh, it, it helps you go there. Those successes, you know, have a, mm. a, a very positive um, psychological impact as well as a negative financial one. So, so I think perhaps we've got about a quarter of an hour left. I think maybe perhaps we'll have a little more discussion here first about how, let's turn to something, the science in the future, and where are these vaccines against things we can't currently make vaccines against? How are we going to develop those? What strategies are going to be taken? HIV, these organisms involved in antimicrobial resistance, these sorts of things.
in a quarter of an hour, guys, solve it. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you asking first? Who wants to go first? Chris, you want to talk? Or? Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think antimicrobial resistance is something that um, is of interest to me, so I'll dwell on that a little. Um, and uh, some, I can see some members of the audience who have been spending a couple of weeks talking about antimicrobial resistance, some of the students uh, from the third year medical course. Uh, and clearly, um, you know, the, I think it's quite clear that antimicrobial resistance is a major issue uh, facing us all. Um, we're not a million miles away from the place where penicillin was first purified from the mold. Uh, we're not a million miles, we're probably about 500 yards away from where the first uh, patient received penicillin uh, systemically um, to treat Staphylococcus aureus disease. And uh, we're now in a position, or we were in a position within about three years of, of that first administration of penicillin to having resistant Staphylococcus aureus being quite prevalent in the community. And uh, we face many other challenges with many other organisms. I mean, the, the drivers for these are, are, are very strong and the emergence of resistance is, uh, I'm afraid, inevitable. Um, microbes are abundant. Uh, we, we carry them, um, we carry lots of them. They exchange information between them, between each other with m multiple mechanisms, um, mechanisms of virulence, but also mechanisms of resistance. And so they're incredibly adaptable and flexible at a genetic level. And if we impose a selective pressure on them, uh, such as um, antimicrobials, then resistance um, is futile or inevitable, I should say. Um, so, so where are we left basically? Well, most of these pathogens that become antimicrobial resistant uh, emerge initially, um, particularly multi-resistant organisms within hospitals, because those are really the breeding ground for, for infections. And uh, Jeff mentioned Staphylococcus aureus. There are a wide range of other organisms, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, uh, Enterobacter, which have become really very challenging to treat. And they become challenging to treat, particularly within the intensive care setting and within the hospital setting. And um, so these are, these are organisms which are, which are not um, um, easy, to, easy to deal with um, because we are dealing with a population who are hospitalized and who are immunocompromised. Yeah, so sure. doing, do, trying to elicit immune responses which are going to be meaningful and protective in that, that population is actually going to be mm. very challenging. Mm. Uh, yeah, so, so you know, the obvious link is if with all this antibiotic resistance about your options for treating become diminished, so therefore you'd like to prevent, so therefore you'd like the vaccines. Yeah. And, um, and yes, in the, those patient groups where you most want that prior immunity, um, you know, they're somehow immunocompromised or not, not very responsive. And then you've also got the emergencies. You don't have time to vaccinate those because uh, yeah. you know, you've got to deal with them in a hospital setting. They're going to get those hospital-acquired infections, so you need the antibiotics. But, but sticking to the vaccine point, you could em envisage people coming in for elective surgery, for example, uh, that it might be at risk through surgery of getting some of these antibiotic-resistant strains. If you could make them immune before they came in because you had a good vaccine, that would be the strategy. So, so the Staphylococcus uh, study that you mentioned earlier, Jeff, uh, yeah. they, they pre-immunized yeah, individuals they before they, they came to yeah, surgery. Yeah, so yeah. that's a patient group where you would expect to do extremely well. Yeah. That, that and, and it still failed. And it still failed. Yeah. Um, maybe, I mean, Staphylococcus uh, is a... Is a, a yeah. I know we have to consider very carefully the biology of yeah. these organisms. Yeah. And 
Staphylococcus is a very it, tenacious organism. It, it is, and one, as I said earlier, where we, we haven't been able to find, define a natural immunity. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, Susan mentioned some of the other things, HIV, for example, uh, there the issues um, in some ways similar. We don't know what natural immunity to HIV looks like because people aren't immune to HIV. Uh, typically they get infected and then with a slow decline they die. Um, some of you may have been at Tony Fauci's presentation here about mm -hmm. a year ago when he, um, he showed a photograph of himself with one of the first AIDS victims in 1984 and a more recent one and he said with those patients there they all died within six months. Now we've got drugs. He said I can offer them 50 years of normal life. Mm -hmm which may mean we don't need a vaccine for AIDS because we can treat so effectively now, although that is a lifelong treatment. <laughs> lifelong uh, treatment. You have to have it every day. And mm. of course, um, you know, it's expensive. So it's not great for African countries. So you would like a vaccine as well, where you prevent the people getting HIV, becoming HIV positive in, in the first place. But things like HIV, um, you've got, you know, uh, hepatitis C virus, you've got rhinoviruses which cause the common cold, there are things like uh, herpes, cytomegalo, Epstein-Barr. We don't have vaccines against those things um, and it's difficult to make them because we don't quite know what we're doing and with HIV in particular and hepatitis C and rhinoviruses you've got this thing called antigenic diversity which means they, they're so different as a population uh, ac across the world where they're transmitted and they change through time mm. that if you focus your if you, if you mount an immune response it recognizes a small subset of, of uh, potentially uh, of, of what's out there and the rest can just carry on causing disease and you know they don't mind if you know one little genetic branch is, is left behind they spread yeah. um, and it's the challenge is making a vaccine that will cover all of the many different mm. genetic variants. And of course um, it's, it's diseases like that that cause people to use antibiotics inappropriately as well. Mm. In the bacterial world, absolutely. And, and of course what we did see in the HIV world, of course, um, was initially when we just had one drug, we saw resistance. And then we got two drugs and then we got three. And so now the reason we're able to hold resistance back in HIV mm. is that we treat with typically four drugs at once. And the, the virus isn't quite sharp enough to escape from them all at once, and so we we have success. I um, suppose a good news story in the in the vaccine yeah. area is the pneumococcal vaccine, Indeed. which has reduced antibiotic resistance in that for that yeah, organism. That's been mm. a fantastic mm. success, mm. but again, it's one where evolutionary biology tries to keep yeah. tries to keep <laughs> ahead, tries to get ahead. So the the story there is there are many different pneumococcal serotypes variants out there. Um, I guess the figure is 100, Chris, this is mm -hmm. your domain, so 105 was yeah. the last time yeah. I heard. Um, and the current vaccine, um, a different vaccine around, but 13 valent, so just 13 of that 105 are in the vaccine. But those 13 are the most prevalent because a lot of the others, 91, 92, 93, they're so rare that we, we don't have to worry too much about them. But what's happening is, as you use the 13 valent, vaccine, those rare guys see it as an opportunity and they start to increase in prevalence. So you prevent the 13 that were the most common 
but other ones start to take their place. So you've got to run to catch up and make a vaccine then against the other emerging types so that you can keep going. But the complexity of your vaccine in the meantime goes up and up. Uh, so you should perhaps drop some. You're never quite certain about what to <laughs> drop. But the first one was a seven valent, and now we're 13, and 15 valent is coming. And um, uh, it works, but manufacturing something like 50 valent and, and formulating that and administering it and getting immune responses to all 50 at once is mind-blowingly <laughs> difficult and almost impossible. Yes. So we, there's only a certain degree to which we can chase yeah, that complexity. Yeah. It sounds like a very bleak thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a drawing, and I just want to, want to say something. like a success. Sorry. Just to put it into context mm. a bit um, from the research side, is that uh, we have, you know, the, the, the toolbox to make new vaccines has never been fuller. Mm. We have ways to piggyback antigens on, the, on, on viruses which are disabled. We have DNA the vaccines. The Susan stuff is really clever these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Jim. Okay, we should, we should end now. Um, we have whole genome sequences of all the major pathogens. We have a genetic blueprint mm. for, for every single meningococcus that, that um, causes disease in the UK. We have huge numbers of sequences of HIV, flu, Ebola. We have all these resources at hand and we can apply them now. I mean, it's, it's a strategic mm. thing at the research side to apply these things and, and um, try and see which one works. Uh, the big hole I think we have, and I, I, don't, I don't work in this space, but I can see it from, from where, where I work, is understanding immune responses and mm. protective efficacy. That is really the key here, because if you can see what is protective, then in the laboratory and in, 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 in the sort of early stage clinic, you know what you're aiming for. You know what sort of responses that you want. Staphylococcus is a very good example of that. People thought antibodies would be protective. <coughs> this clearly is not the whole story. There's an important aspect of cell-mediated immunity, some cytokines which are uh, mm. important in that as well, pretty much disregarded in, in the development of that clinical tool. So that's really, we need investment, or we have opportunities, huge opportunities, to use what's available out there in terms of information and tools, and we have big questions to answer for many infectious mm. diseases yeah. about how protection is mediated and how we can effectively... And sometimes, it is, it, sometimes it is straightforward. Um, antibodies do protect, and mm. it's easy. And uh, the best example in recent years is um, human papillomavirus. Mm, um, the issue that with that virus is we couldn't grow it in the lab. We couldn't make it. And then we, we found a way to make virus-like particles um, using genetic engineering that we could then make in, in, um, in, in yeast, actually, um, uh, or, or other similar systems. And, um, and so you can make it. It's not the real virus, but it looks like the real virus. And you stick it into people, and they make a big immune response, antibodies, and it protects. And that vaccine offers to make cervical carcinoma um, a disease of the past, and it's tremendously mm -hmm. effective in providing protection against um, papillomavirus infections. And, and you know, it, it, I think it's one of the triumphs. It's not yet rolled out across the world to have had its biggest impact, but it's a massive tri triumph of recent vaccinology that uh, that will that will mean cervical cancer should disappear. Mm. So I think on the note of a triumph for vaccinology is perhaps the moment to stop with the idea of lots of new tools and lots of new ideas and
the future is forward. So thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much to... Uh, it's working, isn't it? Uh, thanks very much to Chris, Ian, Sue and Jeffrey. Uh, we didn't quite solve the problem of vaccines for the 21st century, but uh, we made uh, good progress and I think understand uh, some of the issues um, far better than we did coming into the room. So thanks to you all uh, for that. Uh, this is the last seminar in our series for this term. Next uh, term, we are going to focus on climate change. Uh, and the road to Paris. As you know, there's the big global negotiation in December next year, and we're going to both, in Hillary term and Trinity term, run our seminar series first on what's happening, so the modeling of climate change, its impact uh, in multiple dimensions, uh, and then some of the things that we can do about it, the economics, the politics, uh, the ethics, and all the other dimensions of it. So I think it's going to be fascinating whole series um, over about nine weeks uh, on climate change. And uh, the time will be different. It will be at five o'clock uh, next term, so we're going to try a new time. Uh, this hasn't worked for everyone because of all the conflicts. Um, so we'll try that, and we invite you to look at our website, uh, which will give further details uh, of that. But thanks to you all, and thanks to you all for coming. Happy Christmas. <laughs>